everybody. Welcome to Salmorum Liber. That's Latin for studying the Psalms. And this is a series that I'm going to be going through in the book of Psalms, the whole book of Psalms. So starting in chapter one, and we'll go all the way through to chapter 150. And so these series of podcasts are available to you to listen to at your own leisure, to sit down and maybe use in your personal study time or reflection time or commuting time, whatever you would like. Hope you find them helpful, uh, useful, and uh, I hope that they help you not only grow in the knowledge and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also in your experience and worship of him. Thanks very much. Take care. All right. So if we want to turn to Psalm chapter 4, In uh, Psalm chapter four, let me let me read for you. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? You know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace. I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. That is the reading of God's word for this evening. So uh, as a point of introduction, let me go through a few things before we get into uh, the verses here. Uh, At the beginning, you'll see uh, it is written to the choir master with stringed instruments, a Psalm of David. So at that point, we would say this Psalm was written by David with the intent of being sung. Uh, most likely this Psalm was used in the evening. And we say that because of the last verse in this Psalm, but also because there's a lot of thought around the idea that this Psalm was coupled with the previous Psalm, Psalm three. And we talked about Psalm three being a morning Psalm. So a, a Psalm that people would sing or recite in the morning when they woke up, sometimes even before they got out of bed. And the reason for that, again, is uh, in verse five, where David says, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. And so there's there's a lot of consensus around the, the thought that Psalm three and four were meant to go together, one in the morning, one in the evening. So there you would have your morning devotion and your evening devotion, or at least some morning worship and evening worship before you dug into your devotions. Written by David. Not a lot of dispute about that. There are some who who would say we don't really know, but um, a lot of people have commented on the fact that they're going to give this psalm to David as uh, the authorship. And so when we're looking at verse one, David says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. And uh, as again, as a point of introduction, uh, these Psalms, like a, like a lot of them, will address some of the most fundamental of human experiences, primarily being injustice, suffering, and oppression. And that is no stranger to this Psalm here. Uh, the Psalm, this Psalm particularly, in a way, offers not so much what we would call a direct solution as much as it offers a, a way of relief. And that way of relief, like the psalm previous to it, and I would say like most psalms in the Psalter, the way of relief is through prayer, okay? And as we go through this, you'll see that my outline is is basically around the idea of prayer. Um, However deep the anguish and the anxiety that the psalmist was going through, that David was going through, There's this very real sense that David believed that God is more powerful and can reach down even to his very depths of soul to comfort him and protect him. And this is what brought him uh, inner peace, uh, especially when all the stuff going around him was so 
chaotic. And when we look at verse, uh, sorry, chapter three, we're reminded that tradition tells us that David wrote this Psalm, if not in the moment of running from Jerusalem and Absalom, his son may have been written with the reflection of that moment in his life. Um, so here we have in Psalm four, this idea of, of David resting in the peace and comfort of God, despite what was going on around him. And what's interesting, and I think all of us would agree, is that prayer changes things. And we're not, we're not willing to say that prayer changes God's plan. What we are willing to say is that the byproduct of prayer is not always the circumstance that we're in, but I would say more often than not, if not all the time, prayer changes the inner person of the Christian. Meaning it's not so much that when we pray, we're asking God to change his will or his purpose as much as we are praying that in effect, our will would conform to his, our understanding would be informed by his wisdom, that he would open our eyes to his plan, his purposes, his unfolding of what's going on around us or even in our own lives. And so there are very, there are very real things that we do pray for, like the salvation of our friends and family. That's a very real thing to pray for. We pray for our governments, hopefully. We pray for the leaders in our church. We pray for other friends who are Christians. Those are very direct things. But we also want to make sure that when we do our prayer time, that we're praying in such a way that we're recognizing that God is sovereign and he is in control. And, and I know that I repeat that a lot, uh, but it's, it's worth repeating. It's worth bearing again and again and again, uh, because we all go through things in life. And maybe we're going through things even this week, uh, today. Uh, that may cause some shadows of doubt on that thinking process that we have. So here we have in verse one, uh, a plea. It's a prayer to God and it's a plea to God from David. And he says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. And so there's, there's, a, there's an instance here where it's not just a crying aloud in a, in a searching way. The language uh, reveals to us that when David prays this way, he's praying with the utmost confidence. And you, you can see that confidence permeate all through the psalm, uh, especially at the end. Uh, but when he's saying, answer me when I call, is this very real idea that God listens when David calls, not only after David calls. And that's an important principle for us to take forward in our life, isn't it? That God listens to us as we call. He doesn't just listen to us after we call. And there's, and there's a difference there. And the way that I explain this difference is, is that if he's listening to us when we're calling, he's not waiting for us to finish what we have to say. He already knows what we're going to say. He knows what we're going to pray, but he's intent and he's right there with us. Uh, in, in a sense, it's like somebody being beside you as you are outpouring your feelings and your hurt and your doubt and your, your anxiety, your fears. And they are listening to you in such a way that you know that they are connecting with you right there. That you're not having to wait for yourself to finish and then look at this person and see if there's any kind of connection. In fact, David is praying with such confidence. He says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. And that phrase, O God of my righteousness, is an interesting one because we see it uh, in different parts of Scripture. In Jeremiah 23, Verse six, it reads this in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And in first Corinthians chapter one, at the beginning of that letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he, he gets close to the end of that chapter or that introduction and says, essentially, well, it doesn't say essentially, it says this. He says, and because of him, you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 
And I'm going to show you how some of that even plays out in this psalm here. When we, when we get into um, the, the expression of, oh God, my righteousness, that is an expression of trust that David is putting into his prayer. So it's not just a confidence of answer me when I call God. It's a confidence that's girded on a trust that David has in the Lord. And it's very beautiful. And I think at certain points in our lives, we can relate to that. And it's really, really important for us to take that forward from today as an anchor point for our lives. He says, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Now, this is an interesting situation in the middle of verse one, when he says, you have given me relief when I was in distress. That phrase, given me relief, literally means you've given me room. You've given me room. And the word distress has the connotation to it of something that's very narrow. It's tight for you to move through. Okay. It takes a lot of effort and, and, and that effort doesn't come without worry. Now, the word is actually used in the previous Psalm in verse one, where David says, Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. That word foes is often translated oppressor, but it's also used to describe narrow, tight situations, situations that would create fear and anxiety and worry. And so David is using that same word in the sense of you have given me relief. You have widened my area or given me room when I was in that moment of distress, of confinement, of, of narrowness. When I was in there, you have given me room. You have given me relief. And because of that, he's able to say, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. So he's saying, be gracious to me, show me favor. And when he says, hear my prayer, he's, he's essentially saying, show me favor because you have the power to hear me, as opposed to all the other quote unquote gods that were around at that time. David is affirming that our God, the only true God, not only hears anybody, has the power to hear and the power to intervene. And that's how he starts off this psalm. I've, I've broken the psalm into three sections. Verse 1, which is that, that prayer to God. The second section is verses 2 to 5. And I've entitled that section, The Plea to Turn to God. So the first section was the prayer to God. The second section I've called the plea to turn to God. And you'll notice there's a shift in focus. The prayer seems to, or the song seems to move away from David, the person and is focused on somebody else or a group of people. And it starts off in verse two, he says, Oh men. So there's a group of people that he's, that he's essentially talking to in his song. How long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? And you'll see that word Selah there. Last week, we talked about Selah. And one of the things that, that a lot of people believe that, that that word means is one of two things. One, a pause in the song. So you were singing and then there, there would be a pause and maybe the instruments would play. Maybe they wouldn't. Maybe everything would pause. And then you would pick up again in verse three. Or it meant an escalation of volume. And we're not quite sure which one it meant. I'd like to take it as a pause just because I tend to be more reflective when I'm reading scripture. And you will have even noticed that when I was reading through the psalm, when I got to a verse that had Selah after it, I would pause. And I think it becomes very poignant for us, uh, this pausing, when we get to the end of verse 4. And, and I'll pick up on that again. But he says, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after 
lies. And so you notice that the plea is a change for their benefit, not for the psalmist's benefit, not for David's benefit. He's not asking them, how long are you going to do this to me? He's essentially saying, how long are you going to do this to yourself? And that gets played out a little bit more in the upcoming verses. And there's an emptiness that's symbolized by their futility. How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Their emptiness will symbolize their futility and they're only deceiving themselves. In the beginning of this, you see that David says, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? The word that's used there could also be used to describe abundance. So in essence, he's saying, oh men, how long shall my abundance in the Lord be turned into shame, which could also be rendered insult. So he, you, could, you could understand this sentence as David saying, how long will my abundance in the Lord be turned into an insult to you? How long are you going to be insulted by God's favor upon me? And, and, it, and it ties really well with Psalm 3 and even some of the other Psalms that we will run into later on. And then there's a pause. Let me get into verse 3. And it says there, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call him. And he's saying that the Lord has set apart the godly. And the set apart piece means distinct, means to be removed and used for a different purpose. And it's, it's very close to the same word and definition that we would find in the new Testament that describes sanctification. In fact, in the, in the Pentateuch, uh, you would remember that all of the articles of the tent had to be sanctified with blood. They had to be not only separated for its special use, but they had to be cleansed. And, and you'll remember that that theme of sanctification being set apart and cleansed is a theme that runs all the way through the Old Testament and culminates in Christ and in our faith and belief in Christ. And then we are set apart by God. We are sanctified by him. And the sanctification then becomes a two or threefold purpose in the sense that we are set apart for God by God. Uh, and that's a, that's a one-time act. And then there's a process of sanctification that happens in our day-to-day walk. And then there's the final or the, or the culmination of that sanctification when we pass from this earth and we go into Jesus' presence. And some would say that that's the transition from sanctification to glorification. But it has this very real connotation to it that this is set apart. And it's in contrast to the men or the people that David is talking to in the previous verse. It rings close to some things that we know that Paul wrote in the New Testament. Specifically, if we turn to Romans 1, verses 20 to 23, Paul says in Romans 1, 20 to 23, for his Invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, meaning these men or these people. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God or images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So here we can see some echoes of, of David's words in here of saying, how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But people, he continues, know that the Lord has set apart the godly to be distinct, to be separated, to be distinguished amongst everybody else. Now, we're going to see this theme again all the way through the Old Testament, like I said. And, and one of the most poignant 
uh, scriptures that outline that for us is Exodus 33. Exodus 33 is that chapter where God and Moses are talking about the salvation of, of the Israelites or the Hebrews at that point. And God says in response to Moses in, in verse 14, and he said, meaning God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he, meaning Moses, said to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? It is not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. So he's saying that if God, if you don't go with us, there's no difference between us and the nations. And if you don't go with us, essentially, it won't be proved that you are the God of the universe. This God that I've been talking about and have been proclaiming that this God will release the Hebrews. And so Moses is, is, is pleading to God's character that if, if God doesn't go with them, he doesn't even want to go. Right. Because if God goes with them, that is a, that is a sign and a vindication that these people, these Israelites have been set apart for a very distinct purpose. And when we see that theme all the way through scripture, now the godly could be uh, described as those who are saints, those who are pious, those who are faithful. Right. And, and we know that in the old Testament and the new Testament, you could be called righteous Right. Even though we know that we still have to deal with sin in, in our, in our earthly life. Right. And we could look at, uh, uh, the parents of John the Baptist, right. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were righteous in the sight of the Lord. Okay. So they, they did everything that they could to obey the law of God. Uh, and, and I'll unpack this a little bit more as we get into verse five as we come to the end of this culmination of the plea to turn to God. But there's a very real idea here that people can be godly because they're set apart, that now that they can please God in what they do and how what they think, because God has claimed them for themselves. And it's followed up by the statement that the Lord hears when I call him, as opposed to all the other so so-called quote-unquote gods that are around them, this God hears when I call. And it leads us into uh, verse 4. And verse 4 says, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. This verse 4 is a little tricky to interpret uh, not because the language is particularly hard to, to interpret or to transliterate, but because the word that's used here can mean two different things. The first thing it could mean is simply don't be angry. Don't get angry to the point where you're going to sin. And we've seen language like that before, haven't we? We've seen language like that in Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul writes, and we can even turn there and, and read that section. But in, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul has this list of attributes that as creatures in this new life, uh, we have uh, a mandate to... Stay away from anger. So in starting in verse 26, in fact, let me go back to verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. That's a direct quote from Psalm 4. Paul uses those words right from Psalm 4. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. So what Paul is saying here is that if you're angry about something, deal with it without sinning and deal with that anger before the sun goes down. Because the, 
the danger of allowing that anger to manifest itself in you long after the day is over means that a couple things. One, there'll be a residual anger that follows you into the next day. But more importantly, and probably more dangerously, is that when you are lying in your bed and you are pondering those things that you're angry about, you will sin mentally and it most likely will lead you to sin physically. What Paul is saying here is that if you're going to be angry, don't sin. Don't allow the anger to take you over to the point where you do something that's against the will of God. That's one way to look at this verse in Psalm 4. And quite frankly, that's, that's, that's how not a majority of scholars would look at this, but there are a few number of them that have interpreted verse 4 in Psalm 4 in that very way. But I want to I propose to you that it doesn't quite fit the context of Psalm 4. And, and here's why. When we look at verse 2, verse 2 is a, is a changing of perspective from David's own personal self to the people around him. And when he's saying to them, be angry and do not sin, he's talking about this state of mind and state of heart that could lead them down the path of sin even further. And so this word that was translated here into the English, be angry, could also be translated to read, tremble and fear. Tremble and fear. Now, if we look at 1 Samuel, this, this word for tremble and fear is used in 1 Samuel chapter 14. And it's used this way, chapter 14 of 1 Samuel verse 15. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. There's that word. The garrison and even the raiders trembled, the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. So a very great fear. In Micah chapter 7, starting in verse 16, Micah prophesies that the nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths, their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds, and they shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. So that that word phrase, tremble in fear, is used to describe the dread and the fear of the Lord. And I think that fits the context just a little bit better than the idea of in your anger, do not sin. So if David is still talking to people, one who do not know God or people who say they know God, but really don't know God, it makes more sense for David to say to them, tremble and fear and do not sin. When you're by yourself, on your bed, in your home, ponder in your own hearts, which means your inner man, the inner being of who you are, ponder in your hearts, on your beds, and be silent. So it's not an admonition to believers to be careful of, of anger as much as it is a warning to non-believers to think about who they are making angry and who they are before that angry God and to be still in awe of who God is. And then there's that pause there. So essentially what David is saying, I'll say it one more time, stand in awe of God. And because you are standing in awe of him, cease your sinning as you have been doing. 
which he says they've been doing in verse two. How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? How long are you going to live this way? How long are you going to keep angering the Lord? And then he essentially says to them, tremble and fear. And then in verse five, it wraps up this section. And I think encapsulates this idea that David isn't talking necessarily to believers as much as he's talking to those people who say they believe and don't, uh, or people who just say they don't believe and, and they would tell you to their face, they don't believe he's saying to them, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Now, this idea of offering right sacrifices does support the idea that these could be believers, right? However, there is a good argument to, to say that this still supports the idea that these aren't believers or these are people who say they believe and don't. And in, and in them saying that they believe, they're going through the motions of worshiping God. So David is saying, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. So it, it would beg the question, what does David mean by saying right sacrifices? That must mean that they're offering the wrong sacrifice, which could be true. Literally in the liturgy of what they're doing, they could be doing the sacrifices wrong. However, there were some strong rules around sacrifices and if you want to look this up later as, as some study for yourself over the next week, look at Leviticus chapters 1 to 7. And then in those chapters, Leviticus 1 to 7, they lay out in very great detail the major sacrifices that the nation was supposed to undertake. However, we also know that God wasn't necessarily pleased with the sacrifices that Israel gave. Because we know from reading Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, that the sacrifices themselves and the blood, although was shed and those were actual animals that were killed and there was actual blood sprinkled on the altar and sprinkled on the people and, and things were burned and, and, and all of that, although that was very real, that was never meant to take away the people's sin, like Jesus was going to take away sin. All of those sacrifices we know pointed towards the Messiah who would take away the sins of the world. That's why John shouted out when he saw Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God, a reference back to the sin offering, who will take away the sins of the world. And yet in the Old Testament, we know that God demanded sacrifices, but it wasn't so much that he demanded the sacrifice as an actual act of devotion, although that was very true and needed. God wanted something different than that. He wanted something deeper than that. The deeper aspect comes from our heart, the state of our heart, the state of our inner person. And there are a number of scripture verses that, that talk about that, where God doesn't desire the sacrifice of animals as much as he desires the sacrifice of a broken and contrite heart. And so there's, there's this very real situation where David is saying, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Meaning don't just show up and go through the motions because that's not where your heart's supposed to be. If you're going through the motions and thinking that that's going to please God, it's not. It's actually going to make him more angry, as we would read in some of the, the minor prophets. That they're, they're going through the motions as well as sacrificing and going to the temple and pretending to worship God turned into a stench in the Lord's nostrils, to use the metaphor. And so we, we, could, we could look at verses in Isaiah. We could, we could look at other verses in the Psalms that would, that would show us that God's intent of these sacrifices was to break our heart over our sin that separated us from the Lord. As well as all of these sacrifices pointing forward 
to the Messiah. So David says, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. And again, it kind of rings through right to the New Testament, where Paul, in Romans chapter 12, says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And here's the key. Here's here's the driving point to the heart piece of this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I like what John Calvin said in in one of his comments on this particular psalm. And I'm just going to read it for you so that I, I, I get it absolutely correct. Calvin said this. He said, in the first place, he bids them tremble or be troubled, a word by which he rebukes their stupidity in running headlong in their wicked course without any fear of God or any sense of danger. That kind of describes the world that it's, we're in right now, doesn't it? And certainly the great presumption of all the ungodly and not hesitating to engage in war against God proceeds from their being hardened through an infatuated security. And by their thoughtlessness, they render their, themselves stupid and become more obdurate by forgetting both God and themselves, and following whithersoever lust leads them. And that phrase captured my attention so much, I actually wrote it down and showed it to Marika earlier, that by their thoughtlessness of what they were doing, what they were pursuing, and how it was an affront to God, they rendered themselves stupid. And so we see in Paul's admonition in Romans chapter 12, a call to a very disciplined life, to forsake sin, to repent, to turn away, to battle against our sin. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul continues with this thread, in essence, he says in chapter 4, verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ assuming that you have learned about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So when David is saying here, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord, he's talking about a heart condition before God, not a practice condition, not a liturgical condition. He's talking about a spiritual condition. God says in Isaiah chapter 66, All these things my hand has made, meaning all all, all of this creation. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. We're going to come into this psalm later, um, probably not for another year and a half. (laughs) But Psalm 34 says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. 
So David is, is saying to this group of people, tremble in fear, stop your sin. And when you're by yourself, all alone, and it's just you, which means all, which essentially means all alone, ponder in your most inner person and be still and be quiet before the Lord. And then determine to offer the right sacrifices, not necessarily the liturgical sacrifices, but have a right heart when you do it and you place your trust in the Lord. The third section I've called the peace of God. The peace of God. And David says here, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Three things that I want to share with you out of these three verses. One is there's God's assurance of favor. And it's preceded by this statement that David says, many will say, who will show us some good? In essence, who's going to show us the good of God in this situation? You could also loosely translate it something to the effect of prove to me that God is real. And instead of launching into a theological apologetic stance of the reality of God, David, in essence, turns to the blessing from God or the peace that comes from God. In fact, he turns back to essentially the same thing that he mentions in verse two, where he says to the, to the group of people, how long will my abundance be turned into an insult to you? Meaning how long will the peace and the pleasure of God continue to make you angry? In essence, they already know that God is real. They already know that God provides for his people because they're looking at God's king. And David is pointing out to them that that it's not only an abundance for him, but it's an insult to them. So instead of going and breaking it down into some theological diatribe, he goes right into the proclamation of lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. And it's very reminiscent to the blessing from God found in Numbers chapter 6. If you want to turn to Numbers chapter 6, because Numbers is a book that we all should be familiar with, right? We, we read this book all the time, right? I call this the, uh, the, the biblical speed bump of the Pentateuch. Because usually people are good with Genesis. They're really good with Exodus. They get into Leviticus mm, and they're, they're slugging along and then they hit Numbers and it's like, Oh, okay. I'm done. (laughs) I'm skipping numbers. I'm going right to Deuteronomy. But in numbers six, uh, verse 24, this is the Aaronic blessing. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So in essence, the the Aaronic blessing in a very short form is this idea that God lifts up his face because like we talked about in the previous Psalm, when somebody lifts up your face, it's, it's an act of acceptance it's usually done by somebody who's in more power and authority than you. They come to you and they lift your head up, right? To give you encouragement. But here the Lord lifts his own head. And he does so in a way that he looks straight at his children. And the, 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 the light of his goodness and his holiness and his purity shine upon us. 
And it shines upon us in such a way that it fills us with peace. And so David is saying here, there are many who are going to say, who's going to show us that God is real? And and David essentially says, Lord, lift up your face upon us. Because as you lift up your face upon us, your countenance shines upon us. Your peace floods us. And I think we can all think of stories that we've either read or heard or maybe even experienced ourselves that when the world is crashing down around us, there's a huge testimony to the world when Christians are at peace. When we read of Christians around the world being persecuted, beaten, stoned, whipped, cut, raped, thrown into prison, children separated from parents, husbands and wives separated, families torn apart, sometimes literally. There's this expression of peace from Christians that transcends understanding to people. That's what David's talking about here. He's not saying, okay, you want me to prove to you that God is real. Here's six things that you can walk away with knowing that God is real. He's not doing that. He's saying that there's a peace of God. There's an an assurance of favor with God. And you even recognize it because it insults you that God treats us with so much abundance and gives us peace. In verse 7, he says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Uh, I've worked with people who have reveled in the amount of worldly wealth that they've been able to accumulate. They have houses, they have cars, they take great vacations, uh, they have a boat, they have cabins. Like that just seems to be the thing. And in some, most of the circles that I run around in, it seems like everybody has a stinking cabin somewhere. And they, and they talk about it. Like they, they talk about their own home. And I would say that some of them even love their cabin more than they love their, their residence that they're in, you know, 50 out of 52 weeks. And they're happy about it. They love these things. They, they revel in them. They cherish them. There's value to them. But David is saying that God puts more joy in his heart, in David's heart, than the wicked have in theirs with all their stuff. So there's an assurance of joy there. Because you can only find that kind of deep-seated joy in Jesus. And then he ends the psalm with this wonderful ending. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have this engraved on a pillow because most times I fall asleep like that. And I, I, I give all credit to God, but there's certain things, and you guys know, there's certain things that I do that, that I do at night to kind of help me you know, get ready for bed and do this shutdown thing. And I, and I just, I, I, it's very ritualistic and, and it's very habitual, but it helps me fall asleep like, super fast. And one of the things that I do is I pray on my pillow. Now, it's not the only time I pray and it's not the only position of prayer that I take, but it's it's a position that I do nonetheless almost every night. And it may not even be a long time. It it may turn into a longer time than I expect. But it helps me fall asleep because it, it reorientates my mind to the one who's in utter control. And really what David's saying here is, is that there's, there, there's assurance of peace from God. And this is why they call this the evening psalm. Where David in Psalm 3 says, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Meaning the Lord protected me and watched over me through my sleep 
And here I am arising again. And then that night, others would have prayed or thought as they fell asleep that you alone, Lord, cause me or make me to dwell in safety. And essentially, the message here is that if we leave our problems with God, he will shoulder them. And he will enable us to sleep in peace. And I'd be, I'd be probably so bold to say that if we can't fall asleep quickly when we normally would, or if we wake up in the middle of the night for no other reason because we're worried, because we're fearful, because we have anxiety about things, I would encourage you to place those things on the shoulders of God. He will give you peace. He will grant you serenity because he loves you and he takes care of his children. Jesus even said, you know, come to me, all of you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for it is light. And when we begin to, to think about transferring our anxieties and our worries to God to carry for us, I would, I would submit that some of us may even feel a weight being lifted off of us. I mean, we may experience a peace of God that we haven't experienced for a long time. And so uh, the opposite needs to be said out loud too, just in uh, a balance that if you're not feeling peaceful, if you are suffering from fear and anxiety, I want to encourage you to give it to God. And if you have, good. Trust in the Lord. Don't be one of these people who gives to God, you know, kind of three quarters, but kind of keeps a couple fingers around the rope just in case you want to pull it back. Cause maybe, maybe God doesn't know what to do with all of it, or maybe he's just too busy with some other stuff. So I'll just hold on to this little piece and, and I'll take care of this. You, you get the, you get the, all that other stuff, but I'll just hold on to this. Cause I know I can, I can take care of this. That's, that's not giving it all to the Lord. David said, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety.